Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's podcast series, COVID-19, What's Happening Now? Our intent is to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this rapidly evolving outbreak by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. These podcasts will be produced weekly or as often as necessary as we monitor the fluid nature of COVID-19. In this episode, we'll be discussing the global effects of the pandemic. Here to discuss those are Dr. Ann Spaulding with Emory University, Dr. Mahmoud Dalwat with the Nigerian Society of Infectious Diseases, and Dr. Najwa Kouribulos with the University of Jordan. All are experts on infectious disease outbreaks. Thank you all so much for being here. Dr. Kuri Bolos, let's start with you. Please tell us briefly what the COVID-19 situation is currently in Jordan and, if possible, in the rest of the region. Well, let's start with the rest of the region, and then I will not continue much with that. In the rest of the region, as you well know, in, in our region belong to the Emro region. If any of you looks at the situation update on WHO, you will see that the number of cases currently in the whole Emro region is close to 30,000. This has been a great increase, but I'll go back to Jordan because that's where we are really mainly concentrated. In Jordan, we had the first case around three, four weeks, three weeks ago, at which time Jordan took very, very quick steps. And I think they were great steps. Number one, as you know, Jordan is in the Middle East, a hotspot. We were getting a lot of people coming from all over the world. In, uh, Many of them were returning from Europe, from the USA, from other areas where there were cases. So very quickly, we closed off the borders from countries where there was an outbreak, as well as we, whenever anybody came as a Jordanian, we, for example, we evacuated all our students from China and we put them in quarantine. And so we've done a very good job in doing that. We quarantined those returning from endemic areas, as well as we started tracking very quickly the patients who may have been their contacts. We also tracked them with doing PCR. And this relatively helped Jordan to maintain a relatively small number. Currently, since we started tracking cases, we have about 120 some cases and they're increasing, but we're still maintaining the same level, as well as we have designated two, three committees, which are very important. We have an outbreak investigation committee from all health sectors, as well as we have a lot of tracking from the Ministry of Health. We Only the Ministry of Health is in charge of all of those cases, which makes it centralized. They have a good CDC, and they designated two things. Number one, they designated a hospital which will receive only corona cases with a team of nurses and doctors who are taking care of them. They very quickly made an ICU, which is about 24 beds with negative pressure in order to receive anybody who needs ICU care. I hope we don't have much use of that for now. But I think we should not be very congratulatory. I think we will yet get more because we live in a region where there's a lot happening, a lot of traffic, even though we stopped the air traffic, as well as we stop the land traffic from, for example, in the Gulf, from Saudi Arabia, and so on. This shutdown, currently we're having a shutdown in the whole country for a whole period of one week. We've been having difficulty with the population because we were initially planning two weeks. We started and then had to stop because there was a lot of complaints. They didn't have enough supplies. And we're reinstituting it tomorrow. I don't know if we will succeed. It's a very big undertaking. We are making them people who will come and serve them, get them the food to their homes, and I hope we will succeed. We're not out of the woods yet, but so far it's been relatively okay, and we hope to do more to make sure we don't keep on getting an increased number of cases. 
Dr. Dalhat, the first confirmed case of COVID-19 in sub-Saharan Africa was reported in Nigeria back in January. What is the state of the outbreak in Nigeria today? And can you speak to the rest of the region as well? Uh, thank you, Nadia, for that question. The first case of COVID-19 was reported a month ago in a traveler from Italy. Since then, we continue to have cases in Nigeria. As of yesterday, we have 51 confirmed cases and one death, with cases rapidly expanding over the last one week. The African region has reported 1,664 cases with 29 deaths. And over the last 24 hours, we had 359 cases. It is worthy of note that the spread of the COVID-19 is travel-related and has rapidly affected industrialized countries due to volume of travel between these countries compared to our countries. However, we knew that it's a matter of time that it will come to our country. The other factor that determines the number of cases reported is the capacity to test and the volume of testing. So definitely, with our reduced capacity to test, uh, we are kind of under, uh, under reporting the actual number of cases because uh, cases are not as widespread as uh, in more developed settings. Countries with more liberal criteria for testing will definitely detect more and consequently report more compared to us. In terms of the response, the country has activated an emergency operations center soon after the Wuhan outbreak was declared, knowing that it was a matter of when rather than if the outbreak would spread to Nigeria. Major areas of concerns for us are availability of test kits to optimize confirmation of suspected cases, challenges with infrastructure, and by extension bed spaces, with the anticipation we are going to have an explosion in the number of cases and those requirement for hospital care and by extension ICU care. We also have challenges with risk communication given that despite loss of communication by governmental and non-governmental agencies, the general public are yet to come to terms with the gravity of the situation. Recently, the government has set up a presidential task force providing high-level multi-agency, multi-sectoral oversight, thereby ensuring that the response to COVID-19 command the attention it deserves as the, at the highest level of governance. NIDS members across the country working in various ministries, departments, and agencies supported the preparedness and response effort at national and subnational levels. So far, the society has released two statements advocating for more commitment by government, as well as cautioning on the need to adhere to guidelines. As we speak, the NIDS is supporting the NCDC to develop a mechanism to support clinicians with critical decisions on case management, ensuring that only evidence-based decisions guide clinical care for patients. Thank you. Dr. Spaulding, I'd like to turn to you now. You're based at Emory University in Atlanta, but work extensively in the Caribbean. What has been the impact of the pandemic in that region? So again, thank you for having me on this uh, podcast. I have been working with a non-governmental organization, Health Through Walls, which is dedicated to the health of people who are incarcerated in uh, low and medium income countries. And it works in a number of Caribbean countries, uh, specifically Jamaica, the DR, and Haiti, and I have been really focused in my efforts uh, with them uh, 
in working in the prisons in Haiti, I think we saw the, uh, there was a lot of uh, coverage in the media about the first cases in the DR. The Dominican Republic uh, does have a moderate number of cases right now for a small country, um, 392, uh, according to the WHO report, and they've had 10 deaths. Uh, one of the things that has been very striking, though, uh, was Haiti was one of the last countries in the Americas to report any cases of COVID-19. Uh, and I think this is a issue not just of a lack of cases, but also the infrastructure of many countries that are uh, impoverished uh, may not allow detection of cases. Um, I've heard some uh, interviews with people in other regions of the world where they're low-income countries and it's COVID, yep, that's another problem we're going to have, but take a number, we've got uh, get in line, we've got so many other problems to take care of too. Um, and I, I do wonder what the true impact is in a country like Haiti, um, in a country like Jamaica, in a country where there are other healthcare problems that are vying for attention. Um, it may be worse than we realize. I'd like to turn now to a question that has been top of mind for so many, and it's directed to all of you. What has been the situation with testing in your respective countries? Have tests been readily available? And if not, are there alternative detection methods you've had to employ to find cases? Now, is the turnaround time for receiving results adequate as well? Dr. Corey Bulos, I'd like to start with you first. Well, number one, we did bring the PCR relatively quickly because we realized we just cannot look for corona without PCR testing. In fact, I said this to the prime minister. No good ID person can think he can diagnose, you know, corona just clinically. So that really shook them and they brought the PCR testing kits very, very fast. So this is number one and I think it's a must. Everybody should know that. Otherwise, you'll keep on going in circles. So that said, we have been getting PCR testing. Now the turnaround time depends on where you are and we're now currently trying hard to improve this. In the very beginning, we had one single central lab where it, the thing that takes time is taking the sample from the place to the lab. And it used to take anywhere between six to 12 hours. And of course at night, if it comes relatively late, you will know the next day. This was not very satisfactory if you ask me. Oh, and, but however, it is improving for two reasons. We're having more than one lab run them because now we have, as you know, Jordan, we have the, uni the University of Jordan as well as the MOHR central lab is in Amman, whereas in the north we have Mad uh, Irvid, which is another big university. So to make a long story short, we're increasing the sites and that has made a difference regarding the rapidity with which we react. However, even that, that said, I think six to 12 hours is still relatively long for two reasons. Again, because if a patient comes in to the ER and you cannot hold them in, and you're trying to very hard to make sure that you don't get anybody else contaminated, the ER, you don't want it contaminated, the health workers and so on. So we're trying to get our hands onto the very rapid test, which was recently uh, marketed in the USA. Uh, we have not had a chance, even though 
China, but many of us are not familiar with the Chinese medical market. I think China has a rapid test, but we're going to try to get our hands on the US one, especially if we want to do more testing in the periphery of the country, like in very remote places. Ultimately, if we really want to control Corona, we have to look for it all over. And so far we have not done that because we were unable to. We're going to try to do that. And I think we should, I hope, succeed again. But for now, we feel confident that at least we are tracking SARI, what people call SARI, uh, severe acute respiratory illness. We have that kind of uh, surveillance, which is, can be used as a surrogate. If we had found in a place where there is a lot of SARI cases, we would have jumped in. We're not seeing that. So that's reassuring. But still, in the long run, we should do more testing, especially in the periphery. We currently have, as I said, three sites, but we don't have enough. We want to do more. Thank you, Dr. Corey Bullows, for that update. Dr. Dalhat, what is the testing situation in your country at the moment? Thank, thank you, Nadia. Given the rapidly emerging situation uh, with the outbreak, initially our test definition was whoever comes from China, and then gradually we included other countries, and now we have a multi-state outbreak affecting a number of states, so definitely case definitions continues to change, and very soon we are going to get into that stage where anybody with symptoms suggestive of coronavirus should be tested. So the implication is that uh, there will be rapidly expanding need for test kits, for tests which are not available because we are using a PCR-based uh, test uh, in a network of uh, laboratories across the country. Uh, we are planning to double that number uh, in the coming weeks to, 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 to make it commensurate with the demand. Uh, however, as uh, the earlier speaker mentioned, uh, it's very difficult uh, to keep up with the, with the, with the test. At present, you know, we have a system where uh, samples are collected, uh, rapidly transported to these uh, laboratories, and then we get a uh, result within 24 uh, hours. Uh, despite that, uh, we are under testing, we are under reporting, and uh, we look forward to the time when we have uh, more. The challenge with using the, the rapid test kits is that uh, it may come with a lot of test uh, false positives, and then that will uh, affect uh, uh, our ability to manage patients. That is going to affect our reporting uh, through the surveillance system. So there are a lot of challenges. Key challenges are lack of equipment for molecular methods we use for testing. You know, they need to validate uh, the testing kits we are having training needs as we plan to expand the network of testing laboratories across the country improve access to this test to healthcare facilities and then the consumables required in terms of PPE and others uh, to conduct this test, including uh, the challenge of PPE uh, along the supply chain. So these are uh, major challenges with testing that testing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Dalhat. Dr. Spaulding, can you give us an idea of the testing situation here in the States and abroad? Uh, I can speak to the testing situation in the States and then also uh, some to what's going on in Haiti. Um, the first cases, my understanding, um, 
that there have been some PCR-proven cases in, in Haiti, but uh, this is a technology that is not readily available. Um, one of the things that I find very um, interesting, though, is that some of the uh, things that we are not doing in the States may be up and running faster in a country like Haiti than they may be in the States. One of the tools that I wish I had in my back pocket right now would be to do a rapid diagnostic kit um, in order to find who is infected. And there is an announcement on the Partners in Health uh, website, that's the organization run by Paul Farmer, that um, they are trying to rapidly deploy the uh, COVID uh, rapid tests that have been developed in China. And something that is more low-tech than PCR might be the answer to finding cases in, in Haiti in the same way it might really help us get a handle on what's going on in the United States. Um, without the, um, without the piece, uh, the, without the means to find and uh, test, say, go, sending a specimen to a lab that can do a PCR, I feel like we're not going to get a handle on this disease either in the U.S. or in the low and middle income countries that the organization I volunteer for, um, Health Through Walls, works. Dr. Spaulding, thank you for your insight there. Dr. Dalhot, I'd like to return to you now and talk about how Nigeria quickly activated a National Coronavirus Emergency Operations Center once the first case was detected. Were there lessons learned from the 2014-15 West African Ebola outbreak that are informing Nigeria's response now? Thank you, Nadia. Uh, use of the incident command system has uh, helped Nigeria responded to the Ebola outbreak. And since then, we have expanded our capacity to use the same structure to respond to outbreaks. We have since then trained personnel on emergency management in the context of the ICS, Incident Command System. This personnel includes the graduates of the field epidemiology training program that were in the cornerstone of the response, that are in the cornerstone of the resp response to the Ebola outbreak. Nigeria responds to at least an outbreak per week due to improved capacity and sensitivity of the surveillance system. This has provided opportunity for us to keep learning on how best to respond to emergency as they occur. Since the Ebola outbreak, the country has conducted a joint external evaluation followed by a national action plan for security. And recently, emerged as the first country to ever conduct a mid-time JEE that shows some improvement in our readiness score. Despite the above successes, we have areas for which we need to do more. We need to strengthen the states to enable them to timely detect and re effectively respond to outbreaks. To this end, Nigeria is planning to conduct a state-level JEE to replicate efforts at national level. This is also going to be a first globally. We also need to ensure that pandemic plans are developed, revised, and funded as part of global best practices. So uh, based on this, uh, as soon as the one outbreak uh, broke out, we activated the emergency operation center with an incident command system and had pillars for preparedness, for surveillance, for case management, for laboratory, for risk communication, and that 
has helped us uh, to be able to manage this outbreak. And as I mentioned recently, we have a presidential task force to ensure that the work, the technical uh, arm of the government, uh, that is the National Public Health Institute, NCDC of the country, is doing, receive the support and attention uh, of the gov government at the highest level. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Dalha. Switching gears now a little bit, we all know that there are special populations that are potentially at higher risk of not only infection, but serious illness from COVID-19 in each of the regions we've been talking about today. Dr. Kuri Bulos, I'd like to turn to you first. Can you speak to the vulnerability of refugee populations in Jordan and what's needed to prevent spread in their communities? Well, two things. Number one, Refugee population, I've been asking the IOM, many of the international organizations participate in their care, as well as, of course, the Jordanians. In every refugee camp, we have a representative, a doctor representative at the, from the MOH. At the present time, I don't have numbers. I am told that they are able to track patients, though, frankly, their accessibility to the PCR testing, I'm not sure of because, as I said, due to the limitation. However, the gentleman who is in charge of that group told me two things. Most of the refugees, if we're talking about the, the Syrian refugees now, in fact, are living as part of the community. More than 70% are now living as part of the community. So they do have access to the usual care that we offer to the Jordanians, including PCR testing, if we think that they are at risk. And as in the beginning, we were limiting the testing to those who came. Basically, we were telling them to, in fact, we were testing primarily people who were coming from endemic regions, as I said. And we moved towards more of testing our own sari. Then these guys who are living in the community and those who go to hospital will be taken care of in the same manner as our patients. So if that... If the severity is the one that we will be able, they are severe, they will be caught. Are we having any non-severe cases? Not to my knowledge. I was assured by the gentleman who is in charge of the refugee camps. And the, as I said, their international organization, including MSF and so on and IOM, they told me that they have not noticed any spike in respiratory illness and that they are assured that for now, we don't seem to be having a problem. Back to Dr. Spalding now. You've worked extensively in correctional facilities, particularly in Haiti. Can you speak to the unique challenges in preventing and responding COVID-19 in this particular population? Yes, I can. And this is where my passion sometimes gets riled up and feel free to cut me off if I go on too long preaching on this area. So one of the issues with corrections in people who are incarcerated in any country, they're often the overlooked population, out of sight, out of mind, behind the walls, we don't see them. And if there's not a, a resource that's dedicated to justice and getting healthcare into a correctional facility, they are often overlooked. So let me just use the example of a high resource country like the United States. Um, almost every county in, this, in our country has a jail or a prison in it. Um, yet there's often this 
idea that, oh, they've got a medical service, therefore public health doesn't have to do a thing to address the hundreds of people behind bars, doesn't have to do a thing to address correctional officers going in and out of a jail um, and possibly bringing in uh, COVID. And the it's often seen as an area of healthcare that public health does not need to worry about, yet it is analogous to having a cruise ship in every backyard that you have people who are congregated together, living together, eating together, uh, spending all their days recreating with each other, et cetera, et cetera, in very, very um, close uh, circumstances. So for instance, in Haiti, there is a prison that is in the middle of Port-au-Prince that is 400% over capacity. Um, it's so crowded that individuals need to uh, make hammocks in order to have more places to lie down. You have the whole floors covered with people uh, who are sleeping on the floor and in order to have more space to sleep, uh, people string sheets up in order to um, have more bed space to, to sleep. That's how crowded it is. Um, in a room that might be um, maybe uh, 10 feet by 10 feet, or actually maybe 20 feet by 20 feet, you just, it, it's just wall-to-wall -wall people. And we have been dealing as an organization, Health Through Walls has really been focused on tuberculosis, which is one of the biggest killers. Where you see tuberculosis, you're going to see other airborne infections. So I fear for the day when COVID gets into a prison in a country that has its criminal justice system uh, so over capacity. Um, it's just the, the, the possibility that it could be a um, reservoir and an incubator for new infections is just tremendous. Um, so I think from what I can tell and from my conversations with the physicians in Haiti right now who, are, who work for Health Through Walls, I know it's on the radar. Um, I know that Health Through Walls is working with the prison system right now, kind of bracing for this possible outbreak. Um, if, if they're more cases in Haiti, but I feel over here in the United States, um, we are not similarly prepared. And um, sometimes all it takes is for the person in the health department to actually just drive by the prison. And if you have a sense that you think everything's okay, why don't you drive by and see that perhaps the correctional officers at the front door don't have a way to take temperatures of people who are entering, don't have hand sanitizer, don't have enough gloves, et cetera, don't have masks. And there's so much that can be done that is just simply being ignored right now. Um, so there historically, uh, jails and prisons have contributed to airborne illnesses from the plague centuries ago, to tuberculosis, H1N1, um, they were pretty much overlooked. Small jails never got the vaccine um, in the H1N1, and we seem to be just repeating history over and over um, with this new uh, pathogen. 
Some good points there, Dr. Spaulding. Turning to the last question now, let's talk about how the pandemic is worsening now in Europe and North America. I'd like to have a brief overview from all of you on how prepared your countries are to effectively respond should the outbreak take a turn for the worse. Dr. Dalhat, would you like to start us off? Thank you, Nadia. So, so given the impact of the pandemic in more developed health systems, we are very worried by how COVID-19 could affect our health system. Should we have as big a magnitude as we are seeing in the developed countries, major ch- challenges I see include a uh, shortage of uh, personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, shortage of bed spaces, shortage of ICU bed, suboptimal capacity for testing, lack of adequate human resources uh, needed to help to, for healthcare workers. And then also the need for healthcare workers to be trained on IPC and case management so as to develop their confidence to care for patients. And finally, which is very important, is the economic challenge this outbreak could confer on individuals, families, and the governments as a whole. Unlike the developed countries where we have big stimulus packages that cover uh, families, we have a lot of undocumented unemployed living on less than $2 per day in our settings that need to be taken care of. And it's unclear how this group could be taken care of. So uh, having a lockdown uh, the way we are seeing in more developed settings would have more dire consequences uh, in our settings. You don't want to, in trying to prevent the spread of COVID-19, uh, push people to, to hunger and other catastrophes. So uh, the fact that we had the less spread of the disease to our country has given us a little time to prepare. However, the fact that our health systems are weak uh, means that despite all the efforts mentioned earlier, we will not be as prepared as we want. So we held the call by the United Nations Secretary General to help developing countries to respond to this outbreak, as well as uh, support given by other more developed countries in uh, all ways uh, to ensure that uh, our countries uh, survive and effectively respond to this outbreak. Thank you. Thank you for your insight there, Dr. Dalhat. Very briefly, Dr. Corey Bulos, is there anything that you'd like to speak about in regard to preparedness should this outbreak take a turn for the worse? Well, really, we are planning also. We made a needs assessment for our hospitals. But of course, we are a little bit late because the respirators, we may or may not be able to fill the need. As you know, we have many hospitals in Jordan that have a good number of ICU beds, which is great. But still, if we are to believe the numbers, that's why we did this shutdown. If we are to believe the numbers, definitely this will outweigh our capacity. We have, we're lucky in that the Minister of Health is an ex-army person, and he promised that he can construct a hospital at a very short notice. But remember, we have to manage with with people, with equipment. So I'm, I'm a little bit afraid and hesitant to say we are fully prepared, but certainly we're not that bad because at least we are thinking this way before we have a wave. And that's why the shutdown was in fact instituted and we are reestablishing it now after some few hitches so as to make sure that hopefully we will buy some time to prepare everybody. Thank you for that response, Dr. Kouribulos. Dr. Spaulding, any last thoughts? 
so thank you for that question about what could be done and what uh, what can the countries do to prepare uh, should the outbreak take, take a turn for the worse in a uh, country. I just want to speak out to IDSA members um, who are around the world, uh, things that they could encourage their government to think of right now, even if COVID has not hit the country hard yet. One is that jails and prisons are natural reservoirs and incubators for uh, airborne pathogens. And if there could be a plan to start looking at the populations now, what could be done if the um, COVID does hit, how can you reduce the incarcerated population by 10%, 20%? Who could be let out in the case of an emergency um, so that COVID would not pass through such a crowded environment so quickly? That's one is to start thinking about decarceration, not necessarily decarcerating um, if there is a question of public safety, but possibly just prioritizing who would be the ones to be uh, let out in the case of a COVID uh, spike in a particular country. The second issue is um, for those who violate quarantine. When a quarantine issue uh, ordinance is issued in a country, often the government will say, and those who will not uh, abide by the need to isolate or quarantine will be thrown in prison. That's about 180 degrees of, off from what should be happening in a correctional, in, in a for a correctional environment. So to put somebody who has been exposed to COVID into a crowded prison does not make any public health sense whatsoever. Quarantine, isolation, is instituted in order to prevent more cases from happening. To put someone who was infected with COVID in close proximity in a congregate setting um, is, does not achieve any goals of public health. So we need to have IDSA members speak out against draconian measures to enforce quarantine and isolation that would achieve an opposite effect of its intended um, uh, effect. Thank you, Dr. Spaulding, for sharing that. At this time, we'd like to thank our very knowledgeable panel, Drs. Ann Spaulding, Mahmoud Dalhat, and Najwa Kouribulos. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 outbreak, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest developments on the outbreak.